the sound of family. It's beautiful. Well, you're so welcome. If we haven't met before, my name's Andy. I'm part of the team here. Just, um, I know we have at least one in the room. Uh, just wave at me if there are any other English people in the room. Anybody from England? Just, just a couple. I know it's bad, isn't it? But it just makes me so happy when they lose. Um, so I'm feeling rather buoyant this morning. Um, if only because of the rugby yesterday. Uh, it's, it's something really interesting about, uh, for any of you that don't know, uh, one of our board members, Simon, is from England, and uh, whenever, uh, whenever England win, uh, my phone gets just, like, I mean, it just doesn't stop, you know? And uh, whenever they lose, it goes surprisingly quiet. But I just texted him last night and said something so fascinating to me about English culture that whenever you have one decent performance, you think you're the best in the world. Um, and so it was, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. Um, I did love it. I apologize. I, we do love you, our English friends. But um, yeah. Um, I couldn't help but think, next Sunday night, like Stu said, kind of really encourage you to come along. Um, it's going to be a really, really significant night. Um, were my grandmother here, we, she'd be ashamed. Like, not, not only, you know, uh, are we selling things on a Sunday, we're selling them in church on a Sunday. Uh, how far we have slidden. But anyway... Um, Next Sunday night is going to be really significant, so I uh, really encourage you to come along. It's going to be a really, really good night um, for, for us. I want to talk a little bit about a new series we're starting next Sunday called Metrics. Um, for, for some no- time now, I've been really kind of stirred around the question, um, what is it as a community that we are measuring? What's happening up there? Oh, wow. That was probably Simon Tiernan actually talking to the room. Um, I'm quite confident of. Anyway, um, so I've been stirred about this question, what are we measuring? And I want to ask that question because here at Lagan Valley Vineyard, we take really seriously what God says to us. And you need to know that. We we do work really hard at not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, But when when God speaks to us, we're actually doing what we feel like he's asked us as a community to do. And in some ways, that's pretty basic Christianity, right? Do what he says. Like that's, that's pretty basic if you could kind of sum up what following Jesus really is all about. It's just, just do what he says. Um, it's simple, but incredibly hard. Um, maybe you didn't know that, but there are a couple of things that we already measure. Um, I know that in 2014, our average Sunday attendance was 150 people. By last year, that had risen to 507. I know that last Sunday, uh, our offering uh, lifted uh, across both services was 951 pounds and 37 pence, and the week before that was 830 pounds, 43 pence. Um, side note, it's always intrigued me how like attendance and money doesn't track. Um, relax, we're not going to talk about money this morning too much, but it's always fascinated me, you know, that church has grown like pretty consistently like this um, over the last kind of six years, but finances, maybe not quite so much. They've definitely grown, but it definitely doesn't correlate. Anyway... Um, but I've been unsettled for some time about the fact that these are more or less the two metrics that we measure, attendance and money. And they're important, right? Like, they are important. That's kind of how we got to the point of needing to add a second service in the morning because we were counting the numbers and going, everybody doesn't fit, so we need to create more room. Um, I think it's pretty self-explanatory why we count the money so we know how much money we have so that we can budget properly and do all that kind of stuff. Um, but for a while... As a leadership team, we've been chatting and praying about what else we think we should be prioritizing when it comes to what we measure. 
and, um, and how we go about doing that. So starting next Sunday for the next six weeks, we're going to talk about what we want to measure as a community. And more important, and this is where you come in, more important than that, we're actually going to measure it, right? So this is one of those things where like, I could uh, talk all day long about important metrics, but if you don't actually get involved, then we can't actually measure these things. Let me say this as gently as I can. If you don't help us, this will be a complete waste of time. So if you're not all that keen on being involved in the measuring process, um, might be helpful to find another place for the next six weeks. Come back in seven weeks' time. You'd be so welcome, but uh, we really do need you to be involved in this in this process for us. Um, I'll explain more over the next six weeks on what exactly we're going to measure, but the process is going to be pretty much via email, okay? And so if you're not currently getting emails from us or you don't do the email thing, then it's really, really important that you uh, fill in a connection card this morning and give us permission to email you or fill in a connection card this morning and tell us that you don't do email and then we'll find another way to get the, um, the surveys out to you, okay? Um, some of the anonymity will be a challenge if you don't do emails because you're going to have to just tell us. Um, but that's okay. All of the surveys we're going to do will be completely anonymous, okay? So this isn't about us trying to find anything out about you as individuals. We really want to measure accurately what's actually going on with us as people and Jesus and, and the church. So uh, if you could just wave a connection card at me, grab one close to you, wave it at me, pick it up. That's okay. You can all do that for a second. Um, here's what's really important. If you're part of this community and you're like, you do, this is funny, this happens all the time where I like chat to like one half of a family, one married person, and I'm like, oh, here, did you hear about this kind of thing? And they're like, oh, my husband gets emails, I never know, he just tells me whenever he feels like it, or oh, my wife gets emails, I don't get them. This will only work if we're actually talking to everybody, okay? So if you're not currently getting emails from us, can we take couple of minutes now and fill in a connection card. Um, give us your uh, name, email address, and here's what's really, really important. Can you sign the box? GDPR, some of you will think, oh, I go into cold sweats when I think about that term, but it's really important. If you don't actually sign the box, then we can't actually talk to you, okay? So take a couple minutes. We're going to put some music on. If you don't get emails from us or you don't do the email thing, but you're part of this community, then fill it in and ask for uh, some other way in, in your box, okay? Final thing before we take a couple of minutes to do this, please, please write clearly. I cannot tell you the amount of conversations we've had on a Monday in the office where we pass a card around going, I have no idea what that says. And it's ironic because usually the name's quite clear, but it's the email address that's a complete mess, okay? So uh, just write really clearly if you could. We'll stick some music on. Do that for a second now. That would be really, really helpful for us. Thanks a lot. Wonderful. So you can drop those off just at the table at the back whenever you're done. Um, I can't stress enough, the next six weeks will make no sense if we can't actually correspond with you, okay? So uh, we, we need one for every individual. Don't just do the family thing. And uh, if you are getting emails, for, or if you've signed up, or you think you've signed up for emails from us, but you don't get them, can you come and talk to us so that we can make sure that this is working properly? Brilliant. So we've been asking the question, why, for the past four weeks. Uh, we've been in this series called Basics, 
And we've been kind of unpacking some of the basic assumptions around what we do or what we are supposed to be doing as Christians. What's the point of all of this thing? And week one, I said this, that the point of Christianity is that we would surrender our entire lives to the rule and reign of Jesus and that we would learn to demonstrate that rule and reign in our lives and communities for the flourishing of everyone. That's a bit of a mouthful, I know, but uh, it's the most comprehensive kind of explanation of what I think this thing called following Jesus really is all about, that we would surrender our entire lives to the rule and the reign of Jesus, and that we would learn to demonstrate that rule and reign in our lives and our communities for the flourishing of everyone. And we've been unpacking some of the priorities in our community as we try to figure this out in uh, the scriptures, prayer, and worship. We started out asking, why do we read the Bible? Any of you remember that old Sunday school song, read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow? Um, and we've asked that question, like, why, why are the scriptures important? If you didn't realize, the scriptures are absolutely central to the life of this community. And they do two things. They anchor us into the God story. That actually there are so many swirling and prevailing and subverting narratives and ideas in the culture that we live in today. I don't know if you noticed that. That like if you rewind 50 or 60 years to life in Northern Ireland, I wasn't around. That'll shock you, I know. Um, but there was a more or less assumed kind of belief about what the world was about and what was good and what was bad and how to kind of go about doing that. Now, there was probably varying degrees of engagement in that, but there wasn't a massive amount of competing ideology in Northern Ireland. Um, I remember when I moved to the States, I joined the religious life department of a massive university, and I was one of 38 religious life directors, 12 of whom were from the Christian tradition. 26 other religious life directors from other faiths and religions, some of whom I'd never even heard of. So there were some of the obvious ones. There were Buddhists and Muslims. Um, there were two priestesses of the Falun Gong. Any of you heard of the Falun Gong before? So this caused me a bit of a problem whenever I moved to LA because for me, growing up, uh, God and Jesus were synonymous. But all of a sudden, now I'm meeting all these people who are equally as passionate about God, but he, it is just a completely different thing. And it made me wonder, why am I a Christian and not like part of the Falun Gong. Like, is this just because I happened to grow up in Dromore and County Down and there weren't too many priestesses of the Falun Gong walking around? So the reality is we live in a culture that nowadays has huge competing ideas and the scriptures do an incredible job of anchoring us into the God story. They provide an anchor for us, but not just that, they provide a doorway or a pathway for us to encounter God. And we talked about this, that we don't just read the Bible for knowledge or for information. We read the scriptures to encounter Jesus, that they open the door for us to actually engage with God. Stu did a brilliant job talking about prayer, and he said this, he said that prayer is the place where our deepest desires and the longing of Jesus to be present with us come together as one. I thought it was beautiful. Prayer is the place where our deepest desires and the longing of Jesus to be present with us come together as one. And then last week, James spoke about worship. And the truth is we become like the things that we worship. Why is worship important? Because as we worship God, his voice is amplified in our lives. And this morning, I want to talk about people. 
hugely important part of what it means to follow Jesus. I wonder if you ever had a moment on your own that was really funny, but you found yourself wishing someone else was there. You ever had a moment like that, you know, where you're like, oh man, this would be so much better if there was someone else to share this with me. Whenever I was in LA, um, Dana was dropping me off at our apartment building one night. And uh, this was like a sort of car garage thing with loads of spaces. And she dropped me over by the door and uh, she left. And I realized that I'd left my trainers in her car. And so I'm standing there in my socks and um, she had to do this kind of long sort of U drive around to the gate. But I could actually go diagonally across the car park. And I thought, I bet you I can make it because she's got to go slow. And it was about an 80 meter sprint, right? So I took off sprinting across this car park and she was coming up to the gate where you have to wait for the sensor thing and then the gate opens. And I was probably about four or five meters from her at full sprint whenever I forgot about the last row of concrete curbs, you know, that are at the front of parking spaces. And I I literally went from full sprint to on my face with a slight skid on my knee, my hip and my elbow to stop literally like on my face about this far away from her car. And I couldn't speak because obviously I've just like, (laughs) and um, just looked up as the gate opened and she drove off. (laughs) No idea what, just sort of looked around. And I kind of scraped myself up off the ground and uh, sort of looked around, there was nobody else there, hobbled my way back to the door, had to go down to my apartment to get my phone. And halfway down the stairs, I mean, I was like bleeding, (laughs) elbow, hip, knee, and halfway down the stairs, I sat down to like laugh. And I thought that must, like, if somebody's looking at CCTV, that must be the funniest thing you've ever seen. Like, there was no stumble involved in this fall. Like, it wasn't like I tripped and like, it was literally like from full speed to like, boom. And I couldn't help but think, man, if, if somebody else was there, this would be a story they'd be repeating for the rest of their lives. You see, life is enriched by people. And yet the opposite can be true too, right? Like, how many of you, no, don't answer the question, right? Um, how many of you know someone who's stressed out by someone else in their life? How many of you know work situations that would be, all of your problems would go away if that person would just go away? How many of your families would be like, so much, don't admit any of this, right? <laughs> don't nod, don't agree, just look like, I don't know what you're talking about, Andy. I wonder if you ever noticed how the best days of your life and the worst days of your life are usually all about people. The birth of a newborn baby, the loss of a dearly loved one. Life is really all about people, the highs and the lows. If you've been around church or sat through enough sermons, you've probably heard people like me proclaim often that everybody has a God-shaped hole in their heart. And I believe that's absolutely true, but the thing that we talk about way less, but it's equally true, is that we all have a people-shaped hole in our heart. That it's actually impossible to follow Jesus in the way that he wants us to on our own. One of the, um, I think, kind of shadows 
of the evangelical tradition is that we've made this thing all about Jesus and me and my personal savior. And it's been disconnected from what the scriptures are saturated with, which is this thing called life in community. It's actually impossible to do just Jesus and you if you're actually following Jesus. Because he'll always lead you towards other people. He'll always lead you towards other people. I think it's fascinating. Again, it's kind of a new cultural phenomenon that people think that they can do Christianity and not do church. I get my sermons on podcasts. I get my worship through CDs. So cute. Um, It's impossible to follow Jesus on your own. It's absolutely impossible to follow Jesus on your own. Why? Because he will always lead you towards people. Always. Always. You can't help it. That's what he does. God designed us for community. It's one of the reasons that it can be the deepest sources of pain in our lives. We long for community. And when it hurts us, the pain, and probably more truthfully, the disappointment of something not being what we long for it to be can be almost crushing. In John 13, Jesus says that the world will define us as his disciples based on our love for each other. That's a mad thing for Jesus to say. I find that so challenging as a church leader that our ability to see the life of Jesus come to the community that we live in is directly linked to our ability to love each other. There's a metaphor used in the scriptures for the church is that of family, that in Christ we become brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers to each other. That can be incredibly inspiring or more than a little scary, depending on the shape of your family and your experience of it. Why? Because Let's be honest, families are weird, right? Like, they are weird. They're quirky. There's all these personalities in them that, like, you know, if you weren't family, you you maybe wouldn't choose to hang out all that much. My grandfather used to love to tell us that, you know, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. And I used to always, as a kid, be like, he sounds sad about that. Functional, healthy family is one of the most caring, inspiring, loving, adventurous environments that we can ever know. And equally, dysfunctional family is some of the most toxic, tragic, and harmful environments any of us can know. And how true that is of the church. Sadly, it's so true that the church when healthy, can be the most inspiring, loving, caring, adventurous community to be a part of. And yet, when dysfunctional, it can be one of the most toxic and harmful and painful communities on the planet. You see, we can get up, get caught up thinking about cultural shift and drift. We can panic about church decline, the potential political pressure that comes from living in an increasingly secular society, none of which worry me, by the way. We can put a huge emphasis on Sunday gatherings and a slick service. 
But Jesus didn't say any of those things would help the world see that we belong to him. Get a smoke machine and a louder band and your city will change. Is not what he said. Just fill more people in the building. Shout a bit louder. Get a bit more excited. Get more intentional about social media or Instagram or whatever else. That's not what he said. He said that if we love each other, the world will know. If we love each other, the world will know. And let's just be honest for a second. That can be flipping hard. Have you met James? <laughs> I'm just joking. He's thinking, have you met that guy? <laughs> At times I wish that Jesus said something else. Like I wish he said, Andy, if you just nail it on a Sunday... Like if you just give the most interesting and inspiring and compelling talks every single week, then the whole region of the Lagan Valley will change and decide to follow Jesus. But that's not what he said. He said, if you love me, the world will know. If you love each other, the world will know. The question for us is, will we learn to be family? And I do not say that as like a, an inspiring, compelling talk, right? Like when you lean into that, you can almost feel the room going, I don't know if I came to church for that. Like it's much easier to show up and, forgive me, sit at the back and sneak out again and go home and show up next week and, you know, pray that the bit in between the kind of weird announcement slot and the talk doesn't last too long because then you have to speak to people and, you know, oh, look, my phone just went off and there's a really important text message. Sorry, anybody sitting around me? Maybe that's just what I do in those kind of moments. But the question we have to wrestle with if we want to be true to the things that Jesus said is, will we learn to be family? for each other and with each other. As I prepared this week, I felt that there was so much I could say on this subject, but um, I just want to talk really quickly about three things that I think we need to learn to prioritize if we want to have a go with this. Like if, if we want to move out of like just church attendance and maybe step more into what I think God and Jesus has in mind and heart for what the church actually should look like and how it should function. Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, Sue read it earlier. This is this mad moment in church history. The church has just been born, and it's all, it's kicking off. I wonder if you ever heard people say things like, I really want to be part of a New Testament church. Like, I want to, I really want to be part of, like, like the church was in Acts. Like, I want to be part of a, there used to be like conferences on like, how do you become like an Acts 2 church? Maybe some of you have heard people say things like, I used to like that church, but then it just got too big. It just got too big for me. Um, maybe some of you are thinking that about Lagos Valley Vineyard. Let me sketch really briefly for you. I'm just going to geek out for a second on the numerical growth of the early church as recorded in Acts. Okay? So Acts 1, while the disciples are waiting in the upper room, we're told there's about 120 people there. Okay, so this is around Pentecost. Some of you will maybe know the story. Acts 1, there's 120 people there. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people respond to the gospel and are baptized. That's not bad for your first day, right? The church grows from 120 to 3,000 in a day. Um, I think it's really interesting. So whenever you say you want to be a New Testament church, you you know that the minimum numerical criteria is 3,000, right? 
Like that's what's kind of going on here in Acts 2. Anyway, as we have just read, by the end of chapter 2, there are people being added to the church every day. So after it explodes, 3,120, it's growing by a minimum of 365 per year. And of course, it was way more than that. By Acts 4, we read the number of men in the church had reached 5,000. That means at least the same number of women, probably, and the same number of kids on top of that. So by chapter 4, the book of Acts, the church is conservatively around 15,000 people, possibly as many as 20,000. wonder how many of you want to be part of an Acts 2 church now. Acts 5, we read that the growth is showing no sign of slowing down. In fact, by the end of chapter 5, the apostles are being accused of, read this in Acts 5, I think this is class, they're accused of filling Jerusalem with the teachings of Jesus. Can you just imagine if someone was commenting on us that way, those vineyard people, they are just filling Lisburn with the teachings of Jesus. The whole Lagan Valley region is being infected with the teachings of Jesus because of those vineyard people. The growth continues to explode in the city and then out of it, scholars reckon that in the time frame between Acts 1 and chapter 21, that's around 25 years, in case you're interested, that the church in Jerusalem alone was around 100,000 people. It is totally crazy. They reckon the population of Jerusalem was about 200,000. 50% of the city has started to follow Jesus in 25 years. Just in case you're wondering, for us here, that would be about another 64,500 in the next 18 years. This is what it means to be part of the New Testament movement of Jesus. Why am I telling you this? I think we can create a false dichotomy when it comes to growth and the issue of family. We think that it's impossible for the church to feel like family if it gets big. And we think that we have to choose community or growth. And of course that's not true. Of course that's not true. What we see in the book of Acts is the fruit of family is growth. That the fruit of family is growth. The issue is not how big is the church, it's how committed is the church to each other. That's always the question. It's not about how big the church is. It's about how committed the church is. Verse 44 of Acts 2 says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. Remember, this is a mega church. It says they were all together and they had everything in common. Ten times in the first five chapters of Acts, we read the words, They were unified. There's this profound sense of unity in the church. And here is where the rubber really hits the road. You see, no one can commit to the family for you. No one can commit to community for you. We can find ourselves, if we are not careful, showing up here for a weekly fix. And if the worship's maybe a bit off or a bit too loud or I haven't had much sleep over the weekend and maybe I'm not my usual self, you find yourself driving home going, I didn't really get anything out of that this morning. Just imagine going around to your parents' house for dinner sitting together, eating, talking, and then on your way home, commenting to your spouse. Did not really get much out of that tonight? Like, it's just, you know, you might have different conversations. That was weird tonight. <laughs> Did you hear what he said tonight? 
so good to be together tonight. But we rarely, like, like, just imagine, okay, let's not use the family analogy. Imagine you go out for a friend with coffee, for coffee, with coffee. Let's go out with coffee. You go for coffee with a friend, right? You have your conversation, all that sort of happens, and then somebody says to you later, oh, how's your day been? And you say, oh, I met up with a friend for coffee. Didn't get much out of it. It's a mad way to do life. And yet, for some reason, we are very comfortable doing that with this thing called church. Where we think this thing exists to serve you. I'm trying not to offend anybody. Sorry if I'm a bit intense. But the church is not here for you. We are the church. And we're here for the city and the world around us. When you understand that paradigm, all of a sudden following Jesus will make way more sense. This isn't something that exists for you. It's something that you're a part of that exists for the world. Vibrant families commit to each other. Vibrant families commit to each other and nobody can do that for you. Second thing we see really quickly, verse 45, vibrant families give. Vibrant families give. It says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's just mad, isn't it? Like there's no counting up the percents here. 2% to that charity, 3% to that thing, 5% to the church, tithe done. Selling possessions, belongings, distributing the process to all as any had need. It's one of the most compelling pictures of community you can imagine. Several Christmases ago, there's a family in our community that faced the horrendous decision of fixing their car or buying their kids Christmas presents. And uh, I think it was Roy. Roy found out about it and thought, this isn't okay. And he kind of became like a holy debt collector. We just went around knocking on doors, people in our community, and was like, there's this situation, it's not okay, give me some money. (laughs) It's true, right? And ended up going to visit the family and said, here's the money for your car and maybe some extra for goodness sake, buy your kids Christmas presents. That's exactly what we're supposed to be. It's exactly what we are supposed to be. The family of God should be the most radically generous people on the face of the earth. We say this all the time, that we are never more like God than when we're being generous. And if we have a reputation for nothing else in this city, it should be that we are radically generous. That we give. Amy Carmichael famously said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Vibrant families commit, vibrant families give, and finally, vibrant families forgive. And this is where the wheels come off in churches all the time. Because we offend each other, right? We step on each other's toes and we let each other down and we don't do what we hope we would do or we do things that we hope we wouldn't do. Vibrant families forgive. I need to be a little bit flexible here. This is not directly in the text that we read this morning, although I think we're in fairly safe New Testament ground teaching on forgiveness. Verse 46 says, day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. First century Jerusalem, hospitality and being in right relationship were inseparable. So you couldn't actually sit at someone's table and share food with them if you weren't in right relationship with them. This is one of the reasons why Jesus got in so much trouble for who he had meals with. Because everyone was like, you're the holy man. You can't possibly think that you can be in right relationship with that guy. Have you seen the state of his life? I think it's fair to say that first century Jerusalem life and community was as complicated as it is in 21st century Northern Ireland. There's plenty of people offending other people. There's plenty of people letting other people down. There's plenty of people making mistakes. There's plenty of loud people who say too much. There's plenty of quiet people who say too little. And yet they are in this rhythm of constantly sharing food at each other's tables. This is the one that derails families, right? What do you do when you have been hurt or you've been let down by someone in your family? How do you respond to offense in your family? Do we harbor hurts or do we heal them? Do we harbor offense or do we forgive? Forgiveness is the real F word in Northern Ireland, let's be honest, right? For all the talk of reconciliation, the F words never really entered the public discourse. And I get it. It's hugely complex and complicated. Jesus is asked in Matthew 18 about forgiveness. How many times should you forgive someone who offends you? And his response is mad. He basically says as many times as they offend you. That's like, that's one of those ones where you're like, no, Jesus, say something else. How many times should you forgive offense? As many times as you're offended. What if you could live that way? What if that were possible? What if it were possible? I know some of you are sitting here going, Anna, you don't know what's happened to me. What if it were possible? See, forgiveness is a really interesting thing. Forgiveness sets you free. Forgiveness is the doorway to freedom. Forgiveness is the thing that opens our lives up and sets us free. Vibrant families commit, vibrant families give, and vibrant families forgive. I'm just going to be really honest with you if you're just getting around us, right? This is kind of, you're like, oh, this vineyard thing seems interesting. We will let you down. That's true. We will not be able to live up to some of your expectations. And sometimes we'll just make mistakes and they'll feel hard and they'll hurt. And our promise to you, I guess, is that we'll, we'll never do it on purpose, or at least we'll try never to do it on purpose. But it's going to happen. What if we learned as a community how to practice forgiveness? It's like, it's like the opposite way, isn't it, of Northern Ireland? Right? Like, have I, have I done something, have I done something to annoy you? Not at all. <laughs> annoy me, Flip. You could never annoy me. Okay, no problem, just asking. I can't believe they asked that question. That was so annoying. What if we were able to say, yeah, that hurt, 
unable to go, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that to happen that way. If we're going to learn how to fulfill this thing that Jesus said, which was, if you really want to get serious about the world knowing that you're mine, love each other, then we're going to have to learn how to forgive. And not just here, but in every part of our lives. I do not for one second want to tell you that that's an easy journey. But I think it's worth it. And I definitely believe it's possible. We're out of time. Would you stand? I'm going to pray. Why don't you close your eyes? I want to read something uh, just over us and then I'm going to pray. In this family, we make mistakes. We don't get everything right. And that's okay. In this family, we do forgiveness. We're learning that forgiveness is hard, but it sets us and others free. In this family, we believe in grace. We believe in second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. In this family, we're not afraid of conflict, but we despise gossip. In this family, we believe our children are to be active participants in what the family is doing, not silent spectators. In this family, we're honest. In this family, we strive to see the best in each other, choosing to give the benefit of the doubt when we lack information. In this family, we understand that love is more about what we do than how we feel. In this family, we will always make room for others. In this family, we will do everything we can to do what Jesus tells us to do. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and empower us and equip us to live the life you've asked us to live. Lord, would you give us the courage to commit, to give, and to forgive when we need to. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.